2: Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the October 26th, 2020 Halloween themed edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender radio show out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. For queer people, Halloween can be a lifeline a rare moment where we can express ourselves freely and subvert norms that restrict us for the rest of the year. So tonight, to celebrate our favorite holiday, we revisit the graves of the iconic Hollywood Forever Cemetery, talk to actor Mark Patton about his gay nightmare on Nightmare on Elm Street 2, share a scream with horror meister Clive Barker, and get skeptical with the amazing Randy. Launching his career in
3: 1945, James the Amazing Randy entertained millions of people around the world with his remarkable feats of magic, escape, and deception. But when others started to label their tricks as real magic, Randy began to challenge their claims, becoming in the process the world's best-known skeptic. James, have you always been amazing?
4: Oh, no. I used to be astonishing, but it doesn't fit on a marquee very well.
3: You dropped out of high school in 1945 to become a magician. Why?
4: I was one of those child prodigies. I was able to stay out of grade school. I just had to go in to write the examinations. This is in Canada. And many, many years ago, I'm 86, figure it out. And uh, in doing that sort of thing and not being in school and having the ability to wander about, I uh, would occasionally attend a theater, a matinee in most cases, and I got to go to the casino theater and see Harry Blackstone Sr., who was the reigning magician of the day, touring uh, the United States and Canada regularly every year. And uh, (laughs) I can tell you, when he did the levitation of Princess Azra, where he made the lady float up into the air, well, that was magical to me, and I began to doubt whether I would be an organic chemist or an archaeologist as I had planned at that time. I was 12 years of age, and I sort of took a turn, maybe for the worse. I guess archaeology and chemistry lost me, but show business sure got me.
3: But in the 1970s, you became more famous as the a bunker of false psychic claims.
4: I'm not a debunker. I don't accept that terminology, because that would mean that I went into an investigation saying, this is not true, and I'm going to prove to you it's not true. So when I go into these things, though with a certain amount of difficulty, I have to say, I just don't know. Let's find out, shall we? In most cases, I do know, but I saw the damage that it was doing, people's belief in the paranormal powers and and psychic forces and such and I conferred with a great number of them who would even come to me voluntarily and ask me about something I did in the program, and they'd say, well, I enjoyed what you did, so-and-so and and such and such, but when you told the lady her telephone number, that was real ESP, right? And I'd always say, no, 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 there's a way of doing that. Well, what is it? No, I'm sorry, I can't reveal the secrets of the conjurers, after all, because uh, this is a secret brotherhood, sisterhood now. We've got a lot of female magicians in the trade, I'm happy to say. But that's the way I had to to do it. It was very awkward when they started to believe that I actually had the powers. Well, people that believe these people want to believe them. Let's change that statement, though. Instead of just want to believe them, they need to believe them. That's the important verb here, and I always differ with people who say the other one. They actually need to believe it because they want something supernatural in their lives. They want some magic in their lives. You don't need magic, folks. You need the facts. And science has the facts. That's where you'll find the facts of how the world really works.
3: You're probably most famous for exposing New Age psychic and spoonbender Uri Geller.
4: I have been his nemesis for years. I gave that up years ago, though, because I showed that he was a total fake that he just couldn't do what he said he was doing. And I have over 150 examples of where he has said on television, I don't know how to do tricks. I don't know any of those things that the magicians know. What I do is real. And he says it exactly that way on our film as well. And that gets a laugh from the house because they now realize that he's a fellow who bends spoons. Now, wait a minute. What's your profession, sir? I bend spoons. Why? Because it makes me a lot of money. That's a good reason. Bends spoons, this is an art, this is a talent that humanity needs. Any fool can bend a spoon. It's not that difficult. Well, some spoons are exceptional, but <laughs> most spoons you can bend.
3: You wouldn't want them to come to dinner,
4: obviously. Yeah, no, no. I'd be very careful. Don't use the best silverware.
3: Tell me about your foundation.
4: The James Randi Educational Foundation was set up many years ago in order to have an actual organization that could, uh, first of all, we offer a million-dollar prize to any of the psychics who can come forth and actually prove they are psychic. You'd think there'd be a lineup outside the studio on the street right now, wouldn't you think so? I didn't notice any lineup, so we have offered that prize for all these years, and so far, No takers. Now, some people have tried, and I believe that these are the people who really believe they have psychic powers. But when we put them through the test, they fail miserably, and then they're always surprised. That is, the real truthsayers who really believe they have the powers. The others don't come anywhere near us, of course.
3: Someone I haven't talked to yet is Amazing Randy's amazing partner of nearly 30 years, Davey Pena, a.k.a. the artist Jose Alvarez.
5: How did you two meet? We met at the Fort Lauderdale Public Library. I was uh, painting ceramics at that point that had space imagery, and Randy came over and he started asking me if I was interested in space imagery. And I said yes, and we ended up spending the whole afternoon together.
4: And I had a telescope at home, a Questar telescope, and I invited him over to the house to actually see the planet Saturn.
5: And Davey, you've stuck around for nearly 30 years. Well, Amaze is the most incredible human being i ever known. And we have a lot of things in common. And I have found through him a, an incredible sense of compassion. I have met incredibly interesting people, and he's a, a really interesting person. So um, through the years, the love has grown more and more.
3: Randy, you came out as gay in 2010 at age 81. What
4: prompted that? I didn't have any need to do so before that. Remember, when I was a teenager in Canada... That would never have been done. It absolutely wouldn't have happened, or you'd probably be stoned by the neighbors. But the point is, I moved to the United States and found it much more uh, acceptable of that lifestyle. And uh, I eventually got around to the point where, in my 80s, I said, it's about time. And I came out with it with no problem whatsoever.
5: However, I remember one very pivotal moment. We were watching the movie Milk with uh, Sean Penn. And after the movie, Randy was very pensive. Then the following day, he handed me out a piece of paper that he had written the night before. He said he couldn't sleep. And when I read it, it was basically his coming out letter. And I got very nervous. I said, are you sure you want to do this? And he said, well, after seeing the movie, I just thought very hard about the importance of coming out and that I must. And I think that as a person who have based his life work about telling the truth i think it was a necessary step at that moment for him to do and he took it and uh, he received a great uh, appreciation from a lot of
4: people well, the response was well not terribly surprising to me but the result was very gratifying by postal mail and on the internet letters just poured in supporting me saying It's well that you did it, and that was very brave. No, it wasn't all that brave. It was just time to do it.
3: What's the best thing about being an out-gay man at 86 years old?
4: (laughs) The best thing? Well, you had the satisfaction of knowing that uh, you didn't hesitate to tell the world when it was perfectly safe to do so. There's not much danger in that, but it's the agreement that I got. The people who wrote me and... uh, said congratulations. Now, you couldn't tell from many of them whether they themselves were gay or not. And that's not the important thing. The important thing is that uh, from the public in general, I got great approval and acceptance. Acceptance is the word here, I think. That was most pleasant to me to know that uh, I could generally trust the public to come to their senses and look what has happened. Uh, concerning the gay movement now in just recent years. Both Davy and I have been pretty astonished by uh, how out this thing is now and how reasonably acceptable it is to most of the public.
3: This has been a conversation with Davy Pina, a.k.a. the artist Jose Alvarez and James, the amazing Randy. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
6: If you could read my, my love, what a tale
2: Last Tuesday, October 20th, James Randi passed away at his home in Florida. He was 92. The documentary about Randi, An Honest Liar, is available to stream on the Tubi app. Tyler Cassidy is gay, has model looks, and runs a Hollywood park that celebrities are dying to get into.
0: Hi, my name is Tyler Cassidy, and I am president of Hollywood Forever and Fernwood Cemeteries.
3: So are you technically a cryptkeeper?
0: You know, I started calling myself a cemeterian, but I don't think that's a real word. So undertaker's good, cemetery owner, but then I also have a preschool just to round things out in Mill Valley.
3: What all do you do then?
0: At each location here and in Mill Valley, we have... Cemeteries, funeral homes, crematories, although the location in Marin County, Fernwood, is actually a natural burial. It's adjacent to Golden Gate National Recreation Area, which is that gigantic reserve. And there we bury people naturally, sometimes in shrouds, no metal, no embalming, and they're buried in a natural setting. And then we use restoration ecology to restore the grounds as part of the burial.
3: How does a nice boy from the Midwest end up owning a cemetery in
0: Hollywood? Well, we had sold all of our family funeral homes. And I had an idea because when I had gone back after college for what was supposed to be a visit, I ended up making uh, video photo montages of uh, the deceased and showing those at their funerals. That's what I could relate to in terms of a funeral home because it seemed like that was a good way remember someone and more than an embalming art it was actually a form of memorial where people i saw them have the most catharsis and the most emotion and then when the computer age came i designed some software in new york where cemeteries and funeral homes could use our software to have archival systems at their cemeteries to pull up biographical information and photos And so I was actually out here to present to the two biggest cemeteries, Forest Lawn right next door and Rose Hill. And they, at the time, were speaking of the dilapidated, derelict, and twice padlocked Hollywood Memorial Park. And I stopped there on my way to the airport, and it was El Nino. And the place was completely dilapidated and flooded and in great disrepair. But I found it just beautiful. It was romantic. It seemed to me the oldest place in this city that to me at the time seemed just all newness, and it was love at first sight.
3: But still, back then, no one was dying to get in there.
0: Nobody was dying to get in. In fact, you couldn't die to get in there unless you owned a property before they lost their license. But talk about it today. Today, it is more than a cemetery we are a very operational functioning cemetery Uh, we serve so many diverse aspects and so many diverse elements of our community but in different ways in a funereal and cemetery way we serve uh, the russian jewish community of hollywood we serve a lot of our latino population because that's our demographics in l.a We serve a lot of the Armenian population of Glendale, and those are the people that still believe in burial. We also do a lot of cremation business because that's the Anglo trend in California. And then we have, I think, an exceptional program of being an intrinsic part of the cultural fabric of LA, if I can say that. For instance, we just had our annual Dia de los Muertos, and I haven't gotten in the final count, but I think there were, over the course of a day, I'll say over 10,000 people who came yesterday and probably much more. That started as a Mexican tradition, but now I would say it's an Angelino tradition of art and remembrance and performance. And then we also have an ongoing cultural series of plays. We have our summer Chinespia series, which celebrates the great films, both modern and classic and black and white and even silent. We also have art exhibits. So as we... Experimented and opened ourselves. The city kind of saw what I saw when I first walked in. Once it was given a um, fresh look and a fresh name that it was culture, that there was something that was intrinsically cultural about this place.
3: Who are some of the stars residing in Hollywood Forever? Tell us where the bodies are buried.
0: Well, it depends upon your generation, I guess. I mean, it begins with Rudolph Valentino, the great film star. And we still have his annual memorial, which... This year, I think 300 people turned out, which is pretty incredible. Jump forward, we've got uh, Johnny Ramone, and we have such varied characters as one of the Darrens from Bewitched, as well as his boss. We have Miss Estelle Getty, Mr. Blackwell from Mr. Blackwell's List, and then we have those who are famous among their family and friends. But so much of old Hollywood is there. Marion Davies, Jane Mansfield's cenotaph is there. Uh, The great epic filmmaker Cecil B. DeMille, both Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Sr. are there in the great Fairbanks Memorial. And it's amazing how many people who were part of the business either doing scores or behind the camera or doing costumes like Adrian. So many people are there, and yet some of your audience probably wouldn't know them as the generations pass.
3: Do all these activities you do there get in the way of your main business death?
0: That's the amazing thing because, you know, traditionally a, a cemetery is supposed to serve the people in a five or ten mile radius. The interesting thing is we're serving the living unlike any other cemetery by bringing younger people in as well as older people in who aren't there to die or to mourn, and yet they're there to have cultural experiences with the dead surrounding them. And I think that does change their behavior and I think it does change their experience. When people come to see like um, Sunset Boulevard and hear Norma say I'm ready for my close-up Cecil B. DeMille and you know that he's just a hundred yards away, I think there's a special feeling there. And I think just that we've been so willing because of desperation, because we, as you said, people were not dying to get in when I got there. We had to think outside of, I can't say that. We, <laughs> had, to, we had to think outside of the cemetery industry to make this cemetery thrive.
3: There aren't a lot of gay cemeterians out there. Or maybe there there are, are, more,
0: are more than you would think. There's someone in Orange County who actually had a calendar of shirtless funeral directors and sold that for some benefit. So when I was making the funeral convention circuit back in the early part of my career, there were a number of days, and they appreciated me being open.
3: Hollywood forever, forever seems like an awfully long time.
0: Yes, it is, yes.
3: One last serious sure. question. Yep. What sort of preparations are you making for the coming zombie apocalypse?
0: Well, a lot of meditation and yoga. And that's just to keep me calm. And I felt like Day of the Dead was good. I went up in the middle and I just had to meditate for 15 minutes because there were so many people there. But uh, we have started to build vertically. And so we just built a 5,000-crit mausoleum. And then we have plans for another 9,000-crit mausoleum. So the zombie accomplice, it's going to be very busy. I mean, we're going to have to bring in a lot of part-time help. It'll be like wristbands. Yeah, wristbands wrist for in and out And we did show um, Dawn of the Dead just kind of z- of a primer, you know, how to deal with a zombie. That's where they're all living in the mall with the zombies. So I think we're pretty ready. Yeah.
3: Have you ever creeped out roaming around your cemetery at night?
0: I um, <laughs> I have never really gotten the creeps. And I maybe I'm just not sensitive or I'd like to think that if there's anyone there who's working for the dead people, it's me. You know, there's people who are definitely there for the living people and the grieving people. There's specific people now for the people that are there for entertainment, for cultural affairs. But I feel like it's always going to be my job as head caretaker to speak up for the dead people and think of, well, We're not going to do that because they don't like that. Well, how do you know they don't like that? Well, I feel like they don't like that. And I like to think that they're pleased with my job so far. So maybe they're not creeping me.
2: This year, the annual Day of the Dead party at Hollywood Forever has succumbed to the COVID-19 pandemic. But more information on the cemetery and its guests or happening happenings can be found online at hollywoodforever.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
1: The Great Gay Holiday, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. October is an important month in the LGBT calendar. For one, October is LGBT History Month, a month devoted to heroes, sheroes, and our past. October 11th is Coming Out Day, And then there's Halloween. Lesbian poet Judy Grine dubbed Halloween the great gay holiday and made her case in her book, Another Mother Tongue. Halloween that was tied to gay culture began in the 1950s and 60s in the Tenderloin area of San Francisco, where most of the gay bars were located. Huge street events occurred in the 1980s there in the Castro, Key West, Florida, Christopher Street, New York, and Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood. And as Richmond drag icon Joanna Powers put it, it used to be Halloween was the only day you could dress in drag and not get arrested. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Fred Wayne. This is David Dean Botrell and you are listening to IMRU.
2: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor-Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, the second installment in the A Nightmare on Elm Street film series, is best known as one of the gayest accidentally gay films ever made. Or was it accidental? We sat down with the film's lead actor, Mark Patton, to talk about his life, career, and what happened next.
7: Hi, I'm Mark Patton, actor, producer, political activist actually now. I'm the star of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, Anna to the Infinite Power, and many, many more shows. How do you get from the Midwest to Broadway? I was very lucky, a really lucky kid. My dad was a Marine and a Teamster. My mother was incredibly, incredibly talented, but She had no education, and we were a poorer family. We didn't have a lot of money. I was a beautiful little boy. So kids, you know how children are, they figure out pretty quickly. If you wonder about a child being gay, put a bunch of five-year-old boys together on a playground, and they will spot the gay kid (laughs) within the first 30 seconds. They smell them, and they isolate them. So generally, they pick on them, unless they go into hiding really good. And I was never good at hiding. I'm very transparent. So I got picked on a lot.
3: When did you know?
7: I think I knew the day I was born, but I actually, my first memories of really being in touch with that was my brother and I had a bunk bed and I built myself this incredible concoction of drapes and pillows and I had myself all propped up and I was being carried off to marry the king, right? But I wasn't a girl. I was very clearly a boy and I was a boy marrying the king. And I was about four, four and a half, five years old then. But I knew that I shouldn't tell anyone else. I mean, it would be better to say that I was the queen than to say that I knew that I was the boy that was going to marry the king. I just knew that people didn't understand. And they didn't. Tell me about high school. My family was a little chaotic, and they didn't pay attention, and I hated school. I just despised it. But I loved the theater department. That kept me actually in school. My teacher took me under her wing, and she actually risked her job. I went to her one day and said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I really don't. She gave me two After Dark magazines, which could have gotten her fired, because that was a gay magazine in the 1970s about the theater in New York. And she said, you're going to go to New York and be an actor, because you have everything that you need to succeed there. So you're going to get on a plane, and you're going to get out of here, and you're going to find a new world. And... My girlfriend at the time bought me an airline ticket to New York, a one-way plane ticket to New York, for February 18, 1978. I'd never flown before. I'd never been to New York. And she read my diary a few days before and discovered that I was gay, <laughs> but never mentioned it. She was a wonderful, wonderful girl. I had $130, a one-way plane ticket to New York, and I got on a plane and I left.
3: How much of a change was it being in New York then?
7: I stepped off the plane, and I breathed a sigh of relief, and I was safe for the first time in my life. I wasn't afraid. Everything that was a negative in Kansas City was a positive, especially in and around Greenwich Village, was a positive. The way I walked was a positive. My mother always said I had, like, sort of a big ass. And I would keep my sweater way down. And the first time I walked down the street in New York and a guy whistled at me and it was okay, the sweater went right up and I realized I was a hot little guy, you know. And my imagination, the way I talked, the way I presented myself in the world was doors just flew open for me. The way I became an actor is the boy down the hall from where I lived was an actor. His name was Dan Monahan and he was in the Poor Kids Revenge and all this kind of Porky's Movies, and he made a lot of commercials, and I thought, if he can do it, I can do it. So I followed him to his agency, which was a management company. I got the address, and I wrote it down, because I couldn't ask. I didn't really know how to ask people to do things for me. And the next morning, I got all dressed up, and at 9 o'clock, I walked up to the door. There was a big sign that said, if you're an actor, don't knock on the door. Just put your picture underneath and come back. And I thought, well, I'm not an actor yet. So I just knocked on the door, pounded on the door, and the owner of the agency opened the door. He was there early, because the agency didn't open until 10. He said, what do you want? And I said, oh, I've come you know, to apply for a job as an actor. That's how naive I was, right? And he said, how old are you, kid? You know, And I said, I'm 18 years old now. And he said, okay, come back at 11 o'clock. So I went back at 11 o'clock, and he and his wife owned the agency. And they later told me they didn't care if I could act or I couldn't act. I was beautiful. I looked 12. I was 18. I didn't need a school teacher. They could make a fortune off me in commercials because I didn't have to have a teacher on set. I made my first commercial three weeks later. I've made probably 50 national commercials. And I became rich within a very short amount of time. And this was a nice Jewish couple that managed children. And they found out that I had no parental protection, and they started a savings account for me, and they put me on a budget, and they made me take my money and buy an apartment in New York City when I was 21. So then I started auditioning for first commercials, then television series, and then one day the call came, and uh, they said, oh, you're going to go and audition for Robert Altman. It's a new Broadway show coming, and it's about James Dean. The show was Come Back to the Five and I'm Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. I didn't know who Robert Altman was, to be quite honest with you. So anyway, I went to this audition. I only had a couple of pages of the script, and I went in. I was going to read for Scott Bushnell, so I was like, all oh, prepared. I'm going to go read for this guy, Scott. And I had to go on 57th Street to this apartment, and it was about James Dean in Texas. And I thought, should I wear a hat, like a cowboy hat? Or and I thought, you know what? No, just be yourself. Just go in and be yourself. And I did, and I went in and I read for Scott Bushnell, who turned out to be a woman, with was Scotty Bushnell, and it was Robert Altman's producer. And we read the scene. Then there was this little knock on the window, right? And this gray-headed man stuck his head out, and he said, Hi, Mark. And Scott said, Oh, Mark, this is Bob Altman. And Bob said, Well, that was really great. Why don't you come back in three days? And here's the script, and Sandy Dennis is going to be in the play, and um, also Karen Black is going to be in the play. And so you go and read this, and you come back, and I'm going to have you read with Sandy. So I took the script, and I read it. For those of you who know, come back to The Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. is about a James Dean fan club in Marfa, Texas. And I'm the vice president of the fan club, a gay boy. But I am having a relationship with Sandy Dennis. It took place in 1955 and then 1975 on the anniversary of James Dean's death. I was the first part of a transgender person. I played Joe, and Karen Black played Joanne. And they said, oh, by the way, Cher is going to be in the show too. My head just exploded, right? So that began the serious part of my profession. We began rehearsals, and on the first day of rehearsals, there were 200 photographers in the street to take pictures of. Sandy Dennis, Karen Black, Cher... Kathy Bates, Sudi Bond, and me. And we started our journey, and we spent a year together doing the show on Broadway, and then afterwards we shot the movie. And that was it, and I was off to the races.
8: Some storm out there, ain't it? Ain't it, it though? look the
9: show? Where are them new photoplay magazines?
7: Well, no, I haven't unpacked them yet.
9: Why? You just, you know, been waiting for them?
7: Well, now, there's something in there I think you're not going to want to see. And love
8: no and
7: I don't believe you. It, it's that Italian girl, Perry Angelini, but she's already married.:
2: The original Nightmare on Elm Street grossed nearly 20 times its budget and helped launch New Line Cinema. So the young Mark Patton was overjoyed to be cast in its sequel, but his dream film role became his biggest nightmare.
7: At that particular time. 1985, 1986, it was terrifying to be a gay actor in Hollywood. I was instructed when I first moved here that I wasn't allowed to live in West Hollywood, anywhere in the 90069 zip code, that I would not ever set foot in a bar because the agencies kept people in the bars to look for other agencies' gay clients and then sabotage them. It's very cutthroat because at the time, AIDS was everywhere. And it was something that people didn't want to talk about. But you'd see a guy, and six months later, you'd run into him on the street, and he was an old man. As an actor, it was the love that dare not speak its name. It was a completely different world.
3: And in this closeted town, you were cast in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which is notorious for its gay subtext.
7: I'm scared, Grady. Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, and she's female, and she's waiting for you in the cabana. And you want to sleep with me. Look, I don't care if you believe me
5: or not. Hey, I believe you. You've had some scary dreams, okay?
7: David Chaskin wrote it as gay movie, but when people asked him about it, he said, oh no, Mark was just so gay that he gayed up the whole thing and he destroyed this movie. And he did that for 30 years until I busted him in a documentary called Never Sleep Again. And now I'm doing a documentary which is about why boys like me disappeared in Hollywood. Somebody would get famous and you'd say like, oh my God, he's so good. Like Mitchell Anderson. He's so good. And then all of a sudden he's gone. We hid. We had to because it wasn't safe. And it was like, nobody wanted you. When you start getting fag bashed on a national or an international level, I was a boy who ran from Kansas City to New York to be safe. I didn't come to have people throw rocks at me. On television and say, oh, you know, he's such a fag or, oh, you know, like he screams like a girl or he ruined this movie. It was my own personal nightmare. Many, many times about the Nightmare on Elm Street thing, I would go like, God, why me? Why did I end up in this movie? They called the gayest movie of all time. Freddie only kills boys. I'm in bed with my best friend. I'm naked half the time. I have an S&M gym coach who tries to rape me and then gets killed. Why did I end up in this movie?
3: When you cast the male lead in the victim role and then have him scream for 90 minutes, you're going to have some people going, well, that's not the manliest performance I've ever
7: seen. It just boggles my mind, and it's straight, guys. And I say, is that what you really think of women? That the worst thing that you could call me is a woman and you're attracted to women? I screamed in Nightmare on Elm Street exactly the way a person who was going to be murdered would scream. I didn't scream like a boy. I screamed like a person who was about to be murdered. Because I was playing what was traditionally a woman's part, it terrified straight guys. And they couldn't deal with it. They couldn't deal with there was a woman hero, that a woman was going to save a boy because Kim, my scream partner, she never abandoned me. She was the hero. And what they really couldn't get their minds wrapped around, and I got this from a Yale dissertation, is it's called Reconsidering Jesse, is... Everybody's like, oh, you know, Mark's so gay or Jesse's so gay and all these guys. And the professor at Yale, who teaches this in a queer theory class, said, no, the gay person in that movie is Freddie. Freddie's the one that's pursuing Jesse. Jesse's not pursuing Freddie. And if you notice in all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, he's vicious with girls. Like his claws come up between Heather's legs in part one. He's a maniac towards women. But in Nightmare on Elm Street 2 he's seducing me he never hurts me he caresses my face he almost kisses me at one point point. and any boy who's interested in me he kills him
3: hindsight is amazing but did any of these things seem suspicious at the time
7: i realized in the middle of filming and i was like i mean literally my hair caught on fire i was like oh my god i'm in my nightmare And this portion of my life, I always said I would entitle it Scream, Queen, (laughs) My Nightmare on Elm Street because I realized right in the middle of shooting this thing that I was in my nightmare. I mean, this was bad, what was going to happen to me. And I knew when this movie came out, the people that recognized it immediately were 14-year-old boys. And they walked into the theater and they went, "Mm -mm, he's a fag. And it started like a whisper. And then it became a roar. And when they realized that they had a multi-million dollar franchise on their hand, they brought Wes Craven back in. And Wes Craven cut a deal with them that they would pretend that Nightmare on Elm Street 2 never happened and just jump from 1 to 3. It just never happened. When people talk about that movie, they're talking about me. I am Jesse. I am that boy that they're talking about. And it destroyed my self-confidence. And people had thrown rocks at me, had beat me. I had gotten to New York. I had dragged myself out of like basic poverty in the Midwest to become a movie star. And I let some man who wrote a movie as a joke destroy me in a way that nobody else had ever been able to do. I don't even know him. I don't know why he did it. I mean, he sabotaged his own career. He never wrote a movie again. And I want to ask him why. I just want to ask him why face to face. And I don't care if he gets up and walks out of the room and won't answer the question. I don't care if I offend him. I don't care whose feelings I hurt. I don't care if I ever work in Hollywood. I don't care if I ever make a movie. I don't care if I'm ever at a convention again. I want to know why in God's name did this man do this to me, because he was rewriting the movie the entire time. I have the original script. And he would point out points. He'd say, like, when I'm dancing in this one scene, and it's a favorite of straight guys for some reason. I don't know why they love me in this bedroom scene. But he pointed this out in the documentary. He goes, look, that was the actor's choice to be so gay in this. But when you look in the script, which I have, it says, Jesse bumps his butt against the drawer two times, takes a pop gun out, pretends to be masturbating, And pops it as the girls walk into the room. And on the door, it says, no chicks allowed, right? And it's like, I didn't write that. I was just a good, faithful servant. And I was an actor in the way that I was trained to be. And I respected the writer. And I read what was on the page. And I played the part. Even though I was so scared in the middle, I never stopped playing the part. And I want to know why he did it. And when I get the answer, I'll be done. But this is my story. This is the story that I have to tell. It's interesting to some people because I was in a horror movie called Nightmare on Elm Street, or I was in a wonderful movie by Robert Altman called Come Back to the Five and I'm Jimmy Dean. That's just my buy-in. If you're playing poker, those two things are my buy-in. And then I'll tell you about those things if you want to listen to it. But you got to listen to my spiel about HIV and about bullying and. That's what I'm going to trade you. I will talk to you about Freddie if you'll let me tell you how to take care of yourself in the world. In life, I got a front row seat. I definitely did. I earned every line on my face. I've earned every bit of it. We really haven't talked about HIV very much, but when I was diagnosed, I was dead man walking. I was diagnosed with zero T-cells and cancer and pneumocystis pneumonia. I was the full nine yards. I've been on protease inhibitors for 16 years. And I want you to know, my future, no matter what, is great. I'm a happy person. They stole it from me for a little while. But the biggest blessing I have in my life is I like myself. I look in my eyes and I always come down on my side. I am a friend to myself, even when it's really rough. And sometimes it is. But I'm happy. This has been a conversation with Mark Patton.
3: This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
8: Jesse. it's okay. It's all over.
1: (laughs)
9: Did you ever see heaven right in your arms Saying I love you, I do?
3: Well, the dream that was walking, and the dream it was talking, and the heaven in my arms, was you.
2: Since we last spoke, Mark's documentary, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, was completed and released. It's available to stream on Amazon Prime. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
6: James Whale and his pictures, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. British-born theater and film director James Whale expressed an early interest in art. He learned to stage plays while a prisoner in World War I. In 1930, after having moved to the States, he met handsome assistant story editor David Lewis in Hollywood. They openly shared a home in Pacific Palisades for 20 years. Whale is known for directing horror films such as Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and The Invisible Man, which were all blockbuster hits for Universal Pictures. Whale retired in comfort and pursued his first love, painting. A stroke left him depleted, and he committed suicide in 1957. The 1998 film Gods and Monsters depicted a fictional account of Whale's final days. The role of James Whale was played by out-actor Ian McKellen. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, John Porter.
7: Hello, this is the actor Michael Emerson. It's not easy being one of the others, so if time travel or moving the island isn't an option and you're feeling sort of lost, try listening to I.M.R.U.
2: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Clive Barker is an English playwright, novelist, film director, and visual artist who came to prominence in the mid-1980s with The Books of Blood, which established him as a leading horror writer. He has since written many novels and other works, and his fiction has been adapted into films, notably the Hellraiser and Candyman series. Once Upon a Midnight Dreary, the handsome gay horror writer sat down to spill the blood with IMRU's
9: Steve Pride. I am a man, and men are animals who tell stories. This is a gift from God, who spoke our species into being, but left the end of our story untold. That mystery is troubling to us. How could it be otherwise? Without the final part, we think, how are we to make sense of all that went before, which is to say our lives so we make stories of our own in fevered and envious imitation of our maker hoping that we'll tell by chance what god left untold and finishing our tale come to understand why we were born clive
3: barker writer artist filmmaker weaver of fantastic worlds there's very little sex in the work of stephen king right your books are very Sensual, very
9: sexual. Right. Why? Why? (laughs) Sex is fascinating, isn't it? Sex is such a powerful force in our lives. And horror fiction and science fiction and fantasy fiction very often require, as some portion of the narrative to drive a character into a place where he or she would not normally go. I cannot think of a more powerful motive force for that than desire, an erotic love. And so very often, more often than not, my characters are not frightened into corners, but seduced into corners. And that's an important distinction, I mean, I feel as though the dark side, if you will, Exercises in my fiction a great uh, attractiveness, a great seductiveness. I think actually, in allowing the erotic element of, of the villain, the dark entity, to manifest itself, I'm simply following a much older tradition, a tradition which goes back to folklore, which goes back to mythologies of various kinds, in which we seem to own up more freely to the idea that what is um, attractive about the dark side is often tied in with its sexual power. You know, Dracula is an incredibly sexual figure. The devil, I mean, going to the ultimate force for darkness, as it were, is a profoundly sexual figure. And through the many... Uh, myriad uh, uh, representations of the devil over the years that I've studied and read, sexuality and the sexual potency of that character are at the forefront. The whole idea that the monster is sexual and is somebody who will probably do something fabulously forbidden to you is part of his appeal. I think the most homoerotic image I've seen is the poster for Nightbreed with Craig Schaefer. Sure. I mean, that was a movie which was entirely about a subgroup of hidden individuals with their various rules and regulations and rituals into which this young man was brought and initiated, having left his girlfriend behind. Well, gee, what group can this represent? I mean, there was a certain number of people who at the time that that picture came out, completely understood what the picture was about. They tended to be gay critics. Straight critics were just completely in the dark. It was though the movie had to be decoded. And if you decoded it with a gay eye, then it was very clear what it was about. The villains were cops, psychoanalysts, and priests. The nightbreed themselves were a hint of variegation. They were diverse, physically diverse, physically rather sexy. The whole thing was a as gay a movie, I would argue, as, as Bride of Frankenstein. Speaking of that, is there a gay sensibility? For sure. I, I believe there is. And I've had this argument back and forth over the years, and the smartest person I ever had the argument with was Gore Vidal. And Vidal, of course, passionately believes that there is no such thing as a gay sensibility, even though I think he is a perfect example of it at work. I think that if you are brought up with something so essential to you, your sexuality, forbidden you, unexpressed, undebated, uncelebrated, and you live your life having to find codes in the movies that surround you in the general culture in comic books or whatever, which allow you to find places of identification, then from a very early age you start to shape a different sensibility to the straight person, your straight brother let's say, who sees everywhere around him in the culture images which perfectly reflect his sensibility. I was born in 52, a long time before the Stonewall, a long time before the Wolfton Report actually made gay alliances legal in England. Um, so when I was brought up, it was a crime, and you were in jail for a long time, 20 years perhaps, for, for doing something that came naturally to you. If you define yourself, therefore, as unnatural from a very early age, even if you don't quite understand the vocabulary. If you define yourself as an outsider, because really you have no choice but to define yourself as an outsider, everybody else has defined you that way. If you learn to be secretive, because it's easier to be secretive than to be open and honest, if you start to look around at the culture with a, a different kind of eye, an eye which is looking constantly for things which signal that there are people out there who are like you. I think if you're looking around for all those things and trying to shape up an opinion of yourself based upon buried clues around you in the culture, all of those things and a thousand others help you shape a different kind of sensibility to your straight sibling. If you're an artist and as an adult you start to... uh, use the feelings that you developed as a child in your art, and every artist does that, every artist churns over these early feelings, then I think what you have is art which is shaped by gay sensibility. And if I take a long time to make the argument, it's because I'm a little tired of the weary throwaway line that there is no such thing as the gay sensibility. I think it just needs to be argued cogently once, And left alone, of course there is such a thing as a gay sensibility. Of course gay men and women think in some fundamental ways differently from straights. It is not just about what we do in bed. It is about the echoes in the culture of who we are or who we aren't. And it's how we deal with those things. It's, It's the stories we tell to one another. It's the stories we tell to ourselves, which make us feel whole and healed. It's all part of that sensibility. But the movement today is to assimilate, to be
3: just next door neighbor if you can, to have the adopted
9: child and the picket fence and. Well, my choice is to be with a person who means so much to me. And I just want to I want to wake up with him. I want to go sleep with him. I want to be able to talk with him through the day. I don't know if I will go quite as far as the white picket fence, but I do like to have roots. And what we're trying to do together is put down roots, emotional roots. Two trees growing so closely together, their roots entwine. And my husband has a child, and I do my best to be a good stepfather. Uh, But am I ever going to be like my mom and dad? Nah. You have had a number of gay characters in your novels, but I've read
3: you've had trouble with the inclusion of gay characters in film.
9: Well, yeah, I've had trouble with the inclusion of gay characters in in novels. I mean, people are more comfortable with monsters than homosexuals. I, I don't think this comes as any great surprise to either of us, but it's absolutely right. I mean, I think that there's still an awful lot of fear in this town far more than the articles in Out about Hollywood or whatever would tend to suggest. There's the fear that somehow or other, if you are thought of as a gay creator or as a gay producer or whatever, that's all you will ever be. You will be defined by that three-letter word. And my experience has been, though there is a little bit of a problem where that's related, it's not large. I mean, when I go to a signing, when I sign at a gay bookstore and the straight, audience comes in. They don't care. They get their book signed. They get smiles. They get well-treated. That's the kind of ground root stuff that we need to do, I think, uh, as artists. It's not so hard. All I think you need to do is say, I'm a human being, and my work is intended for the largest cross-section of audience that I can make it for. Clearly, if I'm in uh, mid-America, if I'm in Alabama, it becomes more difficult. But I would say that in the last 20 years going on tour, I found it easier and easier and easier to mingle the audiences to, you know, just it's so great, you know, Steve. You go, go to a signing and you see a gay couple and a family with their kids and, and a, older folks and, you know, every color, every race just mingled in that line because they have a single passion and the single passion is, yes, me, but also the imagination. The imagination is a great leveler because we all dream. We all have things which our imaginations throw up as means to explain ourselves to ourselves. And that's what this business is about. I think it's about pulling leaders in from all sectors and saying, come join the collective dream.
3: This has been an interview with Clive Barker.
0: It's supposed to Something evil's lurking
7: in the dark.
2: In case on October 31st, you just want to share your candy apples while you Netflix and thrill. A number of Clive Barker films are available on Netflix. And there's still time for a last word. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, and if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer.com at imruradio.org. And a reminder, we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by the station. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good
7: night.
8: <laughs> Halloween is that magic time when fear and love collide and you can be anything, explore your every side. Yeah, you can be a princess or you can be a duel. Conformities discourage you can test society's rules. Yeah, you can be scary or you can be sweet. But all are the same when they trick or treat. And that's why gay kids love Halloween. Gay kids love Halloween. They can be whatever they want to be and no one tells them no. We got little vampires and little football flares and little androgynous zombie slayers. And One night they're not grand after prayers to in an anvil They take off the mask, they wear 364 days of the year Let the freak flag fly on better, this day the world is better They get the same amount of candy as everybody else They're not turned away from that mean kid's mom. Tonight any form of expression is allowed So grab that eye patch, girl and lift the shroud Because gay kids love Halloween Gay kids love Halloween They can be who they want to be And no one tells them no Got little pirates and little construction workers And little gender swapping Eddie Munsters that was me. Down the skies they're like all the other youngsters And nothing's wrong The world would be amazing if it were this accepting Every night of the year If the girl with the boy's haircut was told You look so cute Every day she'd let go of her fear Of being discovered that she doesn't think like the other kids She could be celebrated if every night was like this And gay kids love Halloween kids love Halloween, they can be whatever they wanna be, and no one tells them no We got little kids with little complexes who feel bad because they don't like little dresses But these kids with lives would be better if they worried less about what they wore instead of who they are That's why gay kids love Halloween, gay kids love Halloween, yeah, gay kids love Halloween